0: Amen. We may be seated. I do want to uh, mention uh, that you may want to take your hymnal and turn uh, to the back to the Heidelberg Catechism. I will be uh, referring to the Heidelberg Catechism, page 872. Uh, I will be referring to this uh, along the way uh, tonight as we consider uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. And so when thinking about uh, what to Uh, consider for Reformation Day, I have given uh, messages, biographical messages on Martin Luther. I've given a message on John Knox uh, in this congregation. And uh, this evening, we're going to be considering Zacharias Ursinus, perhaps a figure that you've never heard of. And if you've never heard of him, I'm actually pretty excited about that. Uh, Because uh, first of all, it's not surprising if you are from more of a Presbyterian background uh, and not a Sort of Dutch Reformed or Continental Reformed background, you may not have heard of Ursinus or Olivianus. Uh, If you were in Grand Rapids, for instance, in a Reformed church, you would have heard their names many times uh, growing up over uh, the years. But we have all benefited, haven't we, from the Heidelberg Catechism, especially Question and Answer One. It's become near and dear to our hearts as we have confessed. Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer one in our morning services, especially what is your only comfort in life and death, your only true comfort in this life and in the time or season of death? What is your only comfort that I'm not my own but belong with body and soul both in life and in death? to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully, fully paid for all of my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, By his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And interesting, you hear echoes of Romans 8 all over this, right? Um, As Romans 8 is one of the most comforting chapters in all of the Bible, this is one of the most comforting questions and answers in all of the English language uh, that, of course, was translated from uh, the German in the 16th century. During the days of the Protestant Reformation... Over 500 catechisms were written because as I explore this story and the development of the Heidelberg Catechism, particularly in southern Germany in the Palatinate, what uh, we're going to hear is that each prince of various realms would have their own catechism because they wanted their people to embrace the truth of the Protestant Reformation. Of course, as so many were coming out of medieval superstitious Uh, Roman Catholicism, embracing a salvation by works rather than a salvation by the work of Christ, uh, looking uh, to images and to saints and believing various doctrines like purgatory uh, and a whole number of other things, a treasury of merits. We won't go into it all, but leaders of realms who had embraced the Protestant Reformation through Luther, through Calvin, through Zwingli, wanted their people to embrace it as well. Because when you're excited about something, what do you want to do? You want to share it with others. You want others to know and to believe the truth. And so you share that with others. And these leaders wanted to share that, uh, these truths with their realm. And so we are considering uh, this evening the Heidelberg Catechism. Now, very quickly again, in the, in the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, which really comes out of the British Isles, you typically have the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms as the standard by which Reformed churches hold their doctrine. That is, that pastors and elders have to hold to that if they are going to be pastors and elders in those churches. And the Dutch Continental side, they have what are called the three forms of unity. What are those three forms of unity? The Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, the Belgic Confession, 1561, and the Canons of Dort, sixteen eighteen nineteen. 19. So those three confessions are a part of the three forms of unity, which churches like Pastor Chris Gordon was here a couple of weeks ago. He's in the URC, the United Reformed Church. They actually hold to those three confessions. Now, they also believe in the, in the uh, Westminster Confession as well. It's just not their official confession. And the same goes for us when it comes to these other confessions. And so we come to this marvelous confession of faith. It's this this confession that we just uh, read and that we confess as a church uh, many, uh, many times over the course of a year is a glorious reminder of who we presently are because of what Christ has done, already done. What nourishing truth for our faith and personal assurance, especially in times of temptation, And suffering. This question and answer one, which for many who aren't familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, but maybe confess it here in this church, this is only one of 129 questions and answers in the Heidelberg Catechism, which skillfully and pastorally summarize the Protestant and Reformed faith. Since it was published 459 years ago in January of 1563, now get your bearings here. Martin Luther nails the 95 Theses uh, to the church door in Wittenberg in 1517. Uh, Fast forward, uh, there is the um, uh, various confessions that are being written. Uh, The uh, Council at Marburg in 1529, Uh, you have Calvin coming along and writing the Institutes. The first edition of the Institutes is in 1536. Uh, So you have Calvin's ministry coming. So there's Luther, Calvin, there's Zwingli, who's the Swiss reformer in Zurich. All of this is happening in the 1520s and 30s and 40s and 50s. Calvin's Geneva becomes a thing in the 1530s and 40s. You you know the story. Calvin was coming through. He was fleeing uh, persecution in France, and he was coming through Geneva, and he was going to go to Strasbourg, and he was going to be an ivory Tower theologian and write books and keep to himself. And William Farrell, or Farrell, if you like to was a, an older reformer. He was kind of crusty and kind of grumpy and passionate and fiery. And, and Calvin told Pharrell that he was just passing through. And Pharrell said, and, and he said, well, why are you just passing through? You need to stay here in Geneva and help us with the Reformation. And Calvin said, well, I'm going to go to Strasbourg and have a quiet life. I'm going to have a quiet life writing books and I'm going to be a scholar. And William Pharrell said, curse your quiet life. May God curse your life of solitary confinement, reading uh, and studying and writing. You need to stay here and, uh, and, and help us with the Protestant Reformation. Thank God that Calvin uh, submitted to uh, the fiery William Farrell and stayed there and carried on in ministry. It's interesting that later when Calvin was actually kicked out of Geneva by the city council and went to Strasbourg for three years, and then he was invited back by the city council... And uh, when he was invited back, Calvin said, I would rather die a thousand deaths than go back to Geneva and minister in that place. And then the next thing he says is quite extraordinary. But I will submit to the will of God. If that's where he wants me to go, I will go there. And he did. And he had a long and extraordinary ministry, which still affects us today. But this catechism was published in 1563, in Heidelberg, Germany. And it has provided extraordinary measures of comfort and encouragement to millions of Christians, tens of millions of Christians the world over uh, since the, those early days. And no one, it can be safe to say, involved in this production would have ever dreamed of the lasting impact that a catechism like this could have. Uh, now, very quickly, uh, in case you're wondering, you're 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 new here. You're not quite sure what a what a catechism is. It's a simple teaching tool for the cause of discipleship, of a question and then a response to that question with an answer that is a biblical summary of some doctrine. And so, being catechized is not some form of ancient torture. Uh, it is learning doctrine It's being raised in in the Christian faith, knowing what you believe and why you uh, believe it. And so uh, the the Reformed community uh, over the years embraced this catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and uh, celebrated it. The, The Genevan Reformer, John Calvin, whose theology had a massive influence on the Heidelberg Catechism, dedicated his commentary to Jeremiah, to Prince Elector Frederick III, who was the elector of the Palatinate. Now, you know that term elector. Uh, In those days, in the Roman, the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy uh, nor Roman, uh, they had electors uh, in different parts of the empire who would come together when there was a need for a new emperor and they would vote. They were called electors. They held very important positions. So this prince elector was the elector of the Palatinate in southern Germany, and he sponsored and oversaw the creation of this catechism. In Calvin's dedicatory address to his commentary on Jeremiah, written in July of 1563, just a few months after the catechism was published, and only uh, a year before his death, um, Calvin gave the pious Prince Frederick high praise for his defense of the gospel in the face of much persecution, especially as it concerned the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. The doctrine of the Lord's Supper. About 200 miles northeast of Geneva, in the city of Zurich, second generation reformer Heinrich Bullinger also gave the Heidelberg Catechism high praise. In a letter to a friend, Bullinger wrote that the Heidelberg Catechism was, quote, the best catechism ever published. Now, that was high praise. Calvin's catechism was already published at this time. There are already Hundreds of catechisms that have been published all uh, over the continent, and he said this was the best one. The success of the catechism spread far and wide, all over Europe. Hermann Selderheis, a Calvin scholar, highlights that success success when he tells about a noted 17th century German-Dutch painter and poet named Anna Maria von Sherman, who lived from 1607 to 1678 who was greatly influenced by the catechism. Recorded as the first woman to attend lectures at the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands, von Sherman once wrote that, quote, as a little girl, no more than four years old, she was picking flowers in the field with her maid, who consequently bade her recite the first question and answer. As she repeated the words, quote, that I am not my own, but belonged to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. She became so exhilarated and so filled with the love of Christ that this event and the emotions she experienced were etched into her memory for the rest of her life. This kind of sense of of God's truth and his gospel and the closeness of God is a story uh, that the catechism has. uh, This story is a similar one for many who have recited this catechism and learned the Heidelberg Catechism and the influence it's had uh, on their lives for four and a half centuries of people. Noted 19th century church historian Philip Schaff tells us why the Heidelberg Catechism in general and question and answer one in particular have been so cherished over the centuries. I, I introduced Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one to my former congregation in Douglasville, Georgia. And I can't tell you the number of people that actually uh, stenciled this, put it on their wall, uh, uh, in various ways had it placed on their walls, read at funerals. Um, it's so precious, so pastoral. Uh, but this um, historian writes this, quote, "'The genius of the catechism is brought out at once in the first question, which contains the central idea and strikes the keynote. It is unsurpassed for depth, comfort, and beauty, and, once committed to memory,' Can never be forgotten. It represents Christianity in its evangelical, practical, cheering aspect, not as a commanding law, not as an intellectual scheme, not as a system of outward observances, but as the best gift of God to man, as a source of peace and comfort in life and in death. What can be more comforting? What, at the same time, more honoring and stimulating to a holy life than the assurance of being owned wholly by Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior, who sacrificed his own spotless life for us on the cross? The first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism is the whole gospel in a nutshell. Blessed is he who can repeat it from the heart and hold it fast to the end. End quote. That's from Philip Schaff's Creeds of Christendom. So the Heidelberg Catechism has been revered by Reformed believers for centuries, but most in our day possess very little knowledge of the Heidelberg Catechism's production, authorship, structure, and theological scope, and I want to, to touch upon some of those things uh, this evening. So if any of you, uh, how many of you have been to Heidelberg? Anybody? few of you have been to Heidelberg, Germany. You'll know uh, how extraordinarily beautiful it is. It has a stunningly dramatic landscape. It sits nestled in a steep valley alongside the River Neckar in southwest Germany. Uh, the famous Heidelberg Castle uh, overlooks the city, peering down upon the famous Heilig Kierke, the Church of the Holy Spirit, where the catechism was first expounded uh, upon Lord's Day and Lord's Day afternoons. The castle also looks down upon the medieval Heidelberg University established in 1386 and the beautiful Charles Bridge. It's a striking city. In the latter part of the 19th century, Mark Twain spent some time in Heidelberg and famously called it the last possibility of the beautiful. But the drama of Heidelberg extends far beyond its castle and bridges and spires, not least in the background and production of her famous Reformation catechism. Now, I want to pause just for a moment And tell you that about 15 years ago, I was at a ministerial fellowship, and I met a man by the name of Sebastian Heck. Sebastian Heck, who's become one of my dearest friends, and of course, uh, we support him as a church, uh, his ministry in Heidelberg. I found out that he wanted to plant a church in Heidelberg. He was from Baden-Baden. And at the time, the Lord had given me a real desire to support something uh, in Germany, to be a part of some work of the gospel in Germany, because that's where my heritage is from. Aurelia Muller will know about this German heritage, as she has it as well. And some of you uh, also have it. Uh, And so I met Sebastian. I heard about his desire to plant a church in Heidelberg, but he said there's no Reformed church in Germany. I have no umbrella to come under. How how can I be ordained? And so we brought his family over to Douglasville, little old Douglasville, Georgia, uh, from Baden-Baden, Germany, and he stayed with us for six months in a pastoral internship. Our presbytery examined him, and and he already had a seminary education, we sent him back over to plant the church in Heidelberg. And so now he's been there for uh, over 10 years in faithful gospel ministry doing extraordinary things uh, for the glory of God in that great city. So it wasn't until 1546, the year of Luther's death, and over 25 years after the 95 Theses were posted, that this territory of Germany, called the Palatinate, began to embrace Lutheranism under the leadership of Elector Frederick II. Remember, prior to the 1520s and the spread of the gospel all over Europe through the leadership of Luther, through the use of the printing press, which was uh, remember the printing press was was uh, established in the 1450s. So the printing press was only about 70 years old when kind of Luther emerged as this great reformer. And so uh, Luther and his friends in Wittenberg began to publish all of these tracts and materials and the 95 Theses. And they were going out and spreading and people were being converted and rediscovering the gospel. and, And all of this was happening. And Elector Frederick II was impacted by it. The German Palatinate was a leading political realm in the Holy Roman Empire, and the ruler of this realm, the Count Palatine, served as one of seven electors who was responsible for choosing the Holy Roman Emperor. This meant that the prince of the realm wielded a considerable amount of political power and ecclesiastical influence. That was a really great thing if you agreed with him, and a really bad thing if you didn't agree with him. Protestantism was very unstable in the late 1540s and early 1550s. I actually read a really extraordinary book. I wish I could call the name of it. Um, uh, I'll I'll look it up later, but I I read it many, many years ago. But it was about uh, a little town in England during the 16th century. Imagine being a professing Christian in the 16th century in England. King Henry VIII declares that no longer are they associated with uh, or under the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, that now the king is the head of the church because he wants a divorce. You know, King Henry and all of his wives and such. We don't need to go through all the history. So, so the, the local churches are having to change a lot of things because no longer are they a part of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, they didn't change a whole lot because King Henry VIII wasn't really a, a theological reformer, as it were. But when he died... His son, King Edward VI, took over, and he and all those around him wanted to bring uh, the Protestant Reformation uh, to the churches in a very real and significant way. And so you had uh, them bringing in all these great scholars. I wish we could do all the detail on that, but we're going to just uh, give you just a little taste of it. And then, of course, Edward VI dies, and who takes over? Anybody know? Yes, Mary Tudor, Um, bad news, bad news. She takes over in 1553, five-year reign. She manages to kill, burn at the stake, all major leaders in England, except for those. Many of them hid, but some of them fled to the continent. And then after she died in 1558, we have whom? Queen Elizabeth I. She has a long range. She has this kind of via media between the Catholic Church and the Church of England, and everybody's kind of frustrated with her because she's not Puritan enough. She's not Catholic enough. She's not Anglican enough. And so we have Anglicanism today, which still has kind of features of, of all the different positions that people can take with the 39 Articles. And so think about this little church having to change, okay, King Henry VIII. Then Edward VI, everything changes. A new Book of Common Prayer comes. And then uh, Mary uh, Tudor comes to the throne. And then that's thrown out. That's illegal now. Now they're having to go back to being Roman Catholics for five years. And then uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth comes along. and She does this via media, and everything changes again. And they have these sort of uh, prayer books that are changed a little bit from before. And and, and, and and so this little church is changing. And that's the way that a medieval, um, someone coming out of medieval Roman Catholicism would have experienced Christianity in the 16th century in England. And you came to the church, and you just sort of, you know, went with the next thing. And that's what was going on. And versions of this were happening all over Europe. So Protestantism was very unstable during the late 1540s and early 1550s. And it wasn't until 1555, and the Peace of Augsburg, the settlement between Emperor Charles V and the Lutheran Protestant princes... That Protestantism became legalized. Protestantism became legalized in those territories where the specific ruler would establish and impose their religion. The Latin phrase that described this settlement was cuis regio eus religio, or in English, whose realm his religion. Whose realm his religion. In other words, whatever the religion of the ruler was, that was going to be the legal religion of the realm. And so, for instance, in Switzerland, you'd have cantons or states that were committed to Roman Catholicism still, and cantons or states committed to the Reformation. Well, a year later, in in February of 1556, Elector Frederick II died, and his nephew, Otto Henry, became the new prince-elector of the Palatinate. Otto Henry was very different than his uncle, however. Frederick II was the quintessential politician. And his convictions often changed with the wind. But Otto Henry was an extremely principled man. He firmly held his Protestant views, which were a healthy mixture of Lutheran, Melanchthonian, that is Philip Melanchthon who followed Luther, and Calvinistic views. Elector Otto Henry sought to bring reform in the churches at the parish level and even tried to get Philip Melanchthon himself to return to his old stomping grounds in order to bring further reform Reform to that region, according to Charles Gunno, quote, Otto Henry authorized a wide-ranging church visitation in 1556. This visitation was carried out by Otto Henry's uh, uh, trusted uh, men, who would go in and observe and, and to see how things were going in the churches. But this visit proved to be, proved to be very discouraging. Many of the churches in his realm were influenced by anabaptism and very few of the ministers were properly trained for the ministry. There was much work to be done. In addition to these visitations, Otto Henry authorized iconoclasm in his realm, authorizing his officials to, quote, clear the palatinate of the material artifacts of late medieval piety. That's basically fancy code for destroy the statues, break out the stained glass windows, and those kinds of things. Henry also brought about calculated reform to the curriculum and faculty of the University of Heidelberg, receiving needful counsel from Philip Melanchthon along the way. All of this, of course, laid a solid foundation for the influential reign of Elector Frederick III, the mastermind behind the production of the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, After Otto Henry died, Elector Frederick III, or Frederick the Pious, as some called him, ascended the throne in 1559. Not to be confused, by the way, with Frederick III of Saxony, who was the staunch defender of Luther in that realm. Different man altogether. Frederick III of the Palatinate, or that part of southern Germany, was born and raised a Roman Catholic, but was converted through the witness of his first wife, Maria, a staunch Lutheran. In time, however, imagine the conversations around the dinner table when the wife reads Luther and gets converted uh, at, to the gospel and then begins having conversations with uh, the husband and uh, who is still uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, and then we see this work of God and bringing both of them. In time, Frederick found himself decreasingly aligned with the hardcore. Lutheranism of his wife, however, and became increasingly attracted to the more moderate form of Lutheranism championed by Melanchthon, along with the teachings of Bullinger and Calvin. Uh, Lyle Bierma writes that, quote, upon Melanchthon's death in April 1560, Frederick III found himself looking more and more to the Zurich and Genevan Reformations for inspiration, advice, and personnel. So sometimes you'll see books titled... uh, the Reformations, plural, because there were all kinds of Reformations happening all over Europe. Uh, they, they were different. They had different emphases, different catechisms, different uh, focuses, all of them focused on that we are saved by grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, and to the scriptures alone that we look. Uh, however, there were different emphases uh, within uh, that uh, general focus. The years leading up to the crafting of the Heidelberg Catechism were quite eventful. Two Lord's Supper controversies arose in 1559, and a Lord's Supper disputation took place in 1560. These controversies and debates focused primarily upon the nature of Christ's presence at the Lord's Supper. Now, there were two um, uh, sort of groups that were arguing with each other. One was called the Nisio-Lutherans, and one was called the Melanchthonians. The Nisio, or Genuine Lutherans, that they called themselves, was a name uh, of, of derision given to those Lutherans who would not bend an inch on Luther's view of consubstantiation or much of anything that Luther taught. These men were contentious, unwilling to work with or endorse anyone who didn't hold precisely to their views. They believed Philip Melanchthon to be a compromiser of truth for the sake of unity and had no time for his 1540 revision of the version of the Augsburg Confession, which changed Article 10 on the Lord's Supper. And so let me give you a sense of this. The Nisio Lutherans wouldn't have come in and worshiped with Christ Church Presbyterian. They wouldn't have been seen close to us. They were strict, sort of grumpy uh, Lutherans that, that... our way or the highway, we won't worship with other people. This is the way it's going to be uh, done. Uh, by the way, these Lutherans still uh, exist uh, in the world today. I have kind of a fun uh, story to tell. Uh, back in 2010, I, I, I shared with you that in my previous congregation, we we, we helped plant that church in Heidelberg. And uh, during that process, uh, a few of us went over there and we created a uh, a kind of introductory video filmed in different parts of Germany to help people understand what we were trying to do, and uh, that was put on the internet so for people to see we wanted people to know what we were doing, planting this church and such and uh, We had a very interesting response uh, to this by a very higher up in i won 't say what denomination but a but a Lutheran denomination uh, in America uh, one of the higher up uh, uh, leaders in that, and um, and he uh, he wrote, oh no, he yeah he wrote this on a prominent Luther, Lutheran blog. So I, I just have to read this because it's actually uh, quite quite uh, interesting and a bit funny. This is what he wrote on his prominent blog um, quote: American Presbyterians are aiming at planting Reformed congregations back in Germany. Watch this video and notice how lacking an articulation of the gospel actually is. Notice particularly the first several minutes where not once is the name of Christ mentioned and only God is referred to and his glory. The word gospel is mentioned, but not articulated. Re- remember, this is just a, a, not a teaching video. This is, a, hey, we're planting churches, you know, we're doing it for the glory of God, such a, he goes on. Um, typical of, he says, the, the word gospel is mentioned, but not articulated. Typical of Calvinism, unfortunately. He goes on. It gets worse. I resent how Calvinists continue to try to co-opt Martin Luther for their cause. We all know how vigorously Luther rejected the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper, among many other views. I understand why the Calvinists must play Lutheran hymns, since their own tradition produced no music of any value in Germany during the Reformation era. But simply using a mighty fortress as a soundtrack for a video does not in any way give them any right to imply that they are somehow the legitimate heirs of the Lutheran Reformation. Let's be clear about something. Calvinism is not a faithful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is not an authentic, genuine, and true presentation of the Reformation, but an unfortunate deformation of it. (laughs) Uh, To my wife's chagrin, I spent a very long time writing him back (laughs) after this blog. I wrote him a very long email shared my testimony of of faith with him, uh, that I grew up in a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod. Ooh, I gave away the name of the denomination, I'm sorry. And how I appreciate Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon's ministry in the context of the Protestant Reformation because he tried to bring the Reformation together, as did Calvin, as did Calvin. Um, Anyway, he had no time for it. But uh, there are still Nisio Lutherans in the world today, as you can you can see. So this is what Elector Frederick III was dealing with, but not for long. In response to the Lord's Supper controversy, Frederick decided that the Nisio Lutherans needed to go and that theologians and pastors of a, a more reformed stripe needed to be brought in to replace them. If I can make this distinction for you, there is a difference between the Lutheran Reformation, and the Reformed Reformation. We agree on a lot of stuff, and we praise the Lord for that, but they are two separate movements. They are two separate movements with two different emphases and teachings as it concerns the sacraments, which has essentially kept us apart for the last 500 years in terms of uh, coming together. Um, And so... uh, uh, so while Martin Luther is one of my heroes, I do appreciate the ministry of Philip Melanchthon who worked hard to come up with confessions to bring all parties together under one Protestant banner. Didn't happen, obviously, uh, but we thank God for the effort. And I, I think this is an important time to just stop and to say this, brothers and sisters, we should hold our doctrine with deep conviction and show the courage of our conviction. Amen. We should hold our doctrine with deep conviction, but we also hold it with charity and with humility and with love. We should never go around with our Heidelberg catechisms or our big Westminster confessions and beat people over the head and wonder how they could be so dim-witted as not to believe or to understand the things that we believe and understand. We are all pilgrims on the way we are all pilgrims on the way and uh, in terms of those who are truly in in union with Christ and there are those from various traditions theological traditions who are united to Christ by grace through faith amen and so we 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 approach brothers and sisters from other traditions with the charity with charity and with humility and rejoicing and celebrating that which we all hold dear. And so we don't hold our views with arrogance. We hold our views with humility. And from time to time, if there is discussion or interest or questions, we talk about those things with humility. But but also we, we cherish them. I, I I really think that it's unhelpful to kind of have this doctrinal reductionism that becomes true of these sort of coalitions that come together and they reduce everything to two or three points. And that actually, in the long run, does harm to Christian discipleship because then Christians actually don't know what they believe or why they believe it about God, Christ, man, sin, the fall, creation, all these things that are so important. We don't want to just throw those out in the name of unity, reducing everything to two or three statements on a website. No, we want to embrace our doctrine, embrace our heritage, rejoice and celebrate the fact that we are Reformed Presbyterians convictionally. And yet, when we bump into our Anglican friend and we begin talking about church, we don't, we don't seek to overpower them or to argue with them in unkind or, or dogmatic ways. We, we, we understand the place for those kinds of discussions, but we hold our views with charity. So there's my soapbox uh. Uh, for for the for the evening. But this brings us to uh, a key figure in the creation of the Heidelberg Catechism, that is Zacharias Ursinus, Zacharias Ursinus. Not a name that one hears too much about in Reformation history, but an important one nevertheless. He lived from 1534 to 1583. 1534 to 1583 he was born uh, the son of a deacon in Breslau, Silesia, which is now modern-day Poland, in 1534. By this time, the Lutheran Reformation was in fourth gear, and Ursinus's hometown was heavily influenced by the Lutheran Reformation, especially by friends and students of Melanchthon. In his mid-teen years, in the spring of 1550, four years after Luther's death, Ursinus began his studies at the University of Wittenberg in order to study under Luther's successor, Philip Melanchthon. Because Ursinus came from humble means, Melanchthon helped him with funding for his school and living expenses, getting a physician friend to sponsor Ursinus. In the last two years of his studies, in 1557-1558, Ursinus went on a study tour of the major cities of the Protestant Reformation paid for by a rich uncle. It's always good to have rich uncles pay for Reformation study tours. Oh, to be a fly on the shirt of Ursinus during this Reformation city study tour. He visited towns such as Worms, Strasbourg, Heidelberg, Zurich, Basel, and Geneva. Thus, Ursinus, in his mid-20s, personally spent time with and was greatly influenced by notable reformers such as Heinrich Bullinger, Peter Martyr Vermigli, Theodore Beza, Calvin's successor, and John Calvin himself, to name a few. While in Geneva, Ursinus was given a wonderful gift, a complete set of Calvin's works. It's quite possible that during this trip, Ursinus began to lean more heavily upon the Swiss Reformation and less upon the German, namely the Lutheran. After a brief time of study in Paris, Ursinus returned to Wittenberg, where he was soon invited to teach at the school in Breslau, which he attended as a child. The town of Breslau, however, was divided over issues concerning the elimination of Roman Catholic ceremonies and the real presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. When he started teaching, Ursinus kept his recently fortified Reformed convictions to himself, but eventually he felt the need to speak up. One writer comments that after his first year of teaching, Ursinus, quote, came forward with a number of theses concerning the Lord's Supper that demonstrated his change from a moderate Lutheran to a clear following of Calvin's teaching. Wanting to avoid further conflict in the city of his youth, Ursinus resigned from his post in the spring of 1560, and he moved to Zurich to study Hebrew and the Reformed faith with the Italian reformer Peter Martyr Vermigli. Meanwhile, going on at this very same time in Heidelberg is the unfolding of all the drama that I mentioned earlier. Remember, in 1560, Elector Frederick III recently ascended the throne and tensions rose up between the Nisio Lutherans and the Reformed. They were running high in the university and in the parish churches, and the doctrine of the real presence of Christ was being hotly debated and fairly big changes were being made. One of those changes was Elector Frederick's Reformation of the Collegium Septentia, the College of Wisdom, a training college for pastors that was established in 1555. Under Frederick's leadership, the college became a Reformed theological seminary of sorts. Frederick contacted Italian reformer Peter Marta Vermigli and asked him to consider supervising this college. Vermigli declined, but he highly recommended his student, Zacharias Ursinus. In July of 1561, Ursinus accepted the job, but not without reluctance. Like Calvin, Ursinus longed for a peaceful life of study away from conflict. In a letter to a friend just before moving to Heidelberg, Ursinus writes, Oh, that I could remain hidden in a corner. I would give anything for shelter in some quiet village. These are, I must say, the thoughts of probably every pastor (laughs) from time to time in the midst of busy ministry or conflict. But the Lord had better things for Ursinus to do than to study and write in a quaint and quiet Swiss village. Ursinus showed up for work in Heidelberg on October 13, 1561. Elector Frederick appointed him rector and teacher at the College of Wisdom. After his first year, he received his doctorate and was appointed as professor of dogmatics at the University of Heidelberg. In addition to these responsibilities, Ursinus began to work on, you guessed it, two catechisms. In 1562, a smaller catechism for children and the common laity and a larger catechism written for his theology students at the university. All of Ursinus' work on these two catechisms served as the groundwork for the Heidelberg Catechism. Indeed, it has been clearly shown that 90 of the Heidelberg Catechism's 129 questions and answers can be traced back to Ursinus' shorter catechism And there are also many linguistic parallels to his larger catechism. In addition to Ursinus' work on his own two catechisms, we know that around this time Ursinus was translating Calvin's Genevan Catechism of 1541 from French to German. And in a letter to Calvin on April 3, 1563, Caspar Olivianus, who some view as a kind of co-author of the Heidelberg Catechism, wrote that, quote, On this market day, your catechism is coming out in German, well translated by Zacharias Ursinus. So we can see that Zacharias Sinus was well suited to, uh, for such a time as this. God had prepared him to be the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism. The somewhat complex theological landscape of Elector Frederick's, Frederick's Palatinate kingdom, a kingdom filled with Nisio Lutherans, Zwinglians, Anabaptists, Melanchthonians, and Calvinists, needed a new confession a confession that would be doctrinally sound and irenic or peaceable in spirit in order to bring reform to the church, to the university, to schools, and to homes, in order to foster unity amongst the various Protestant factions and in order to be used as an educational tool for discipleship. Ursinus would be the man chiefly to write it, but not apart from the wise counsel and editorial, theological, and pastoral insights of Caspar Olivianus along with the theological factory, faculty rather at the university, the church superintendents, and the principal members of the consistory or session of elders. I want to pause for a moment and comment on the, the fact that it's always interesting, isn't it, to read biography, to hear about people's lives, the twists and turns of people's lives, especially when it comes uh, to these, these reformers. It's interesting to see how God shapes and moves uh, these reformers for his own ends. I doubt that the 26-year-old Ursinus would have ever dreamed that his appointment to Heidelberg and his work for Frederick III uh, on his catechism would have made such an enormous and lasting impact uh, on the church. And here, beloved, we must remember God's providence, that he truly is working all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose in every one of our, our lives. And in questions 27 and 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism, if you want to open to those, questions 27 and 28, you'll see some of the most precious language used regarding the doctrine of providence and how pastoral it is, where it says, What do you understand by the providence of God? Answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. And so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. It comes by his fatherly hand. I remember hearing many years ago, we were in Milan, and Sebastian was preaching. On these questions and answers. And he made a comment which has always stuck with me that if we believe the truth that is set forth, this summary of biblical truth set forth in this question and answer, then we believe that if difficulties come in our lives, that it is truly brought to us by our Heavenly Father, and that it's better that this is happening than if it were not happening. Because the Father is is much wiser than we are, and He knows exactly what we need. He knows exactly what everyone around us needs. Think of all the things, perhaps, that we would do or say or think or act out on if the Lord hadn't brought difficulties into our lives to humble us and to make us trusting creatures to our God. This is precious. All things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question 28, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? Answer, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. They cannot so much as move. God is sovereign. He's working all things together for good for his people through his providence, and we can trust him. What's the alternative? Chaos. You're on your own. Some dictator that takes over is the one who truly is in control. Those are the only options. But we know, dear ones, that over all that is taking place in the world today, the Lord is sovereign and he's working out his will. There's great mystery. We live in a valley of tears. Sin has brought so much brokenness and and sin and wickedness and people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. But this is our wonderful comfort in life and in death that not a hair can fall from our head. A hair does not fall from our head apart from the will of our Heavenly Father. And our Sinus' life is a wonderful testimony of God's faithful, providential workings. And it's an encouragement to us to trust God, to rest our faith in Christ, and with the energy of Christ to press on with the ministry, with the vocations that he has given to us. Well, what is the purpose of the catechism? What is the purpose of the catechism? Earlier, I alluded to the purpose and aims of Frederick's new catechism, in his preface to the Heidelberg Catechism written in January of 1563, the elector clearly spelled out the purpose of its production. About a third of the way through his introduction, Frederick writes this. And here's interesting, too. You have this, this king, this elector, this, this person who is, is in charge of the realm, and yet he's called Frederick the pious. He's godly. He's godly. He cares about the spiritual lives of his subjects. And so he writes the introduction to this new catechism, and this is one portion of it. Quote, on the advice of our entire theological faculty here, also in cooperation with all superintendents and the chief ministers of the church, we have had had prepared and compiled in both German and Latin a concise booklet of instruction or catechism of of our Christian religion extracted from the word of God. This was done so that in the future, not only will our young people be instructed in the Christian doctrine in a godly manner and admonished in unanimity, but also so that pastors and school teachers themselves will have a reliable model and a solid standard as to how to approach the instruction of our young people. And so that they will not change one thing or another on a daily basis, you know, which doctrine do we believe today, or introduce a contrary doctrine. So we see that there are essentially three main purposes or aims set forth. It's meant to be a catechetical tool for the instruction of children, a ministerial preaching guide for the proclamation of the gospel and sound doctrine, and a form for confessional unity in the Palatinate. First of all, and I'm going to really just focus on this one uh, due to time, a catechetical tool for the instruction of children. When elector Otto Henry sent his emissaries into the, church, uh, into the churches of his realm in the late 1550s in order to take stock of the spiritual condition of these churches, we learned earlier that he was not pleased with what he discovered. The ministers were not properly educated, and the members were profoundly ignorant of foundational doctrine. And dear ones, as we take stock of evangelical churches in our day and even many confessionally reformed churches, we discover similar things. Doctrine has been, been de-emphasized while programs and music and entertainment and mercy ministry have been given center stage, pun intended. We've all seen it. This is in large part why high percentages of our youth are leaving the church not long after they Move from home. The children of evangelical churches are, in general, not being taught the seriousness of sin, the riches of grace, the importance of the law as that which exposes our sin, and the use of the law as that which guides us in our Christian lives. These are the foundational doctrines that solid reformational catechisms teach, and thus we ought to take advantage of them and teach them to our children. Are we making spiritual deposits in the lives of our children? Are we investing in them, or are we merely amusing them? Are we teaching and encouraging our families to make use of the catechism? These were not only important questions in the 16th century. I remember hearing a story from a family member. They were saying that their child was asking if they could stay home on Sunday morning in the the parent answered, why? And th- the child says, because when we go to church, all we do is play wee and eat Fritos. I can do that at home, they said. And I also heard uh, another family member uh, say uh, that he was sick of his church, giving away $100 bills and jet skis. So giveaways, uh, a hype, uh, uh, programs, programs. Uh, big music, smoke machines. This is why we are losing our youth, because they don't take our churches seriously. They don't take us seriously. I remember Carl Truman teaching me one time about this British word called naff. That is so naff. And I said, yes, he's using that word. I said, what in the world are you talking about, Carl? He said, naff. You know, it's like when a, an adult dresses like a teenager. It's naff. The teenagers wince because their dad is dressed like a teenager, um, and the dad doesn't recognize he's being naff uh, by doing that. But we're losing our youth because our churches are turning into these entertainment zones. We're trying to amuse our young people rather than take them seriously and teach them to take the Bible seriously. We minimize doctrinal instruction and discipleship, the very thing the Great Commission requires of the church. Our minimalistic and superficial approach to discipleship is causing serious damage. J.I. Packer and Gary Parrott have recently uh, co written a book entitled Grounded in the Gospel Building Believers the Old Fashioned Way. In this, they make the important point that there are no shortcuts to godliness and no replacements for the spiritual nurture of our children and our churches. Listen to what they say here. Quote, Superficial smatterings of truth, blurry notions about God and godliness, and thoughtlessness about the issues of living are all too often the marks of evangelical congregations today, particularly, if we may dare to say it, some newly planted ones. We think that as long as catechesis, which was the strength of Christian nurture in the past, continues to be out of fashion, These shortcomings are not likely to disappear. As we contemplate today's complex concerns, hopes, dreams, and ventures of Christian renewal, catechesis presses us as the key present-day element of discipleship all the world over. The Christian faith must be both well and wisely taught and well and truly learned. A far-reaching change of mindset about this is called for without which such well-worn dictums as American Christianity is 3,000 miles wide and an inch deep will continue, sadly, to be verified. Recovery of the educational, devotional discipline of catechesis cannot, to our mind, come a moment too soon. And so Elector Frederick was concerned for the spiritual welfare of his realm, and he believed that biblical discipleship was key to fostering reform and renewal. And in our current climate, our current climate of superficial evangelicalism, we too need reform. We need to recover this practice in our homes, in our churches. Our children need to be taught the fundamentals of the Christian faith over and over. They need to constantly be reminded of the reality and power and penalty of sin. Our children need to be continuously taught the foundational truths and benefits of the gospel. They need to be taught the three uses of the law. The Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms teach these truths and we should make use of them. The catechism also served as a preaching guide for pastors, and also it was a common confession to foster unity in the Palatinate. Well, finally and briefly, we have the three sections of the catechism. And you've heard this laid out like this. We have uh, the guilt section, grace section, and gratitude. Guilt, grace and gratitude. And uh, in these sections, we have this unpacking of what it means to be fallen in sin, who saves us from our sin, and then finally, the thankfulness with which we should live as redeemed Christians. Of course, it deals with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, as did many ancient catechisms. What I want to do as we close uh, this evening is I want to read th- this section on the guilt section to show the way the catechism builds and i 'm going to read a bit California fast uh, tonight uh, so that we can get through this, but i want to read uh, look at question three of the hartvar catechism i 'm going I'm to read through and I want you to 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 recognize how it builds. The truth builds and there's anticipation as to what is coming. And there is glory and excitement every time you read through it. Uh, And so I'm going to read this and then I want to talk about just a couple practical ways that we can institute um, the the catechism in our, our lives and our homes. Question three, from where do you know your sins and misery? From the law of God. Question four, what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in a summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So can you keep all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No. On the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God, his creator, heartily love him and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all convinced and born, conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes. Yes. Unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Nine. Is God then not unjust by requiring in His law what man cannot do? No. For God so created man that He was able to do it. But man at the instigation of the devil in deliberate disobedience robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Ten. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment, both now and eternally, as he has declared. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Question 12, since according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? Answer, God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Question 14, can any mere creature pay for us? No. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? Answer, one who is a true and righteous man and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. Why must he be a true and righteous man? He must be a true, and right, a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17. Why must he at the same time be true God? He must be true God so that by the power of his divine nature, he might bear in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for us and restore us to righteousness and life. Question 18, but who is that mediator who at the same time is true God and true and righteous man? Answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What a glorious movement from the fallenness and sin to the justice and wrath of God to the mercy of God and to the one whom he would send to be our Savior. You see why this is so glorious, why this is so important for the life of the Christian. In question 36, you'll see there, the question and answer, what benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness, covers in the sight of God my sin, which, in which I was conceived and born in question forty four he talks about delivering me, and there 's this this personal pastoral language just all throughout uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, which brings such wonderful encouragement and deepens our uh, assurance. And so, while we come to the end of this time together, how do we respond to this history? As Rosinus is one of those great, in the great cloud of witnesses who encourages us to carry on, to keep on. And I think when when we look at the historical development of the Heidelberg Catechism and we just touch upon the, the form of the catechism, guilt, grace, gratitude. When we think about uh, these questions and answers we've we've gone over tonight, which is just a small sampling of them, I wish we could take more time. W- we see how these catechisms can be so helpful for the discipleship of our children and for the ongoing discipleship of our congregation, for ourselves as adults. We're obviously in the, in the adult Sunday school class walking through the the Westminster Larger Catechism. Uh, I've been using, as I've shared before, this Be Thou My Vision uh, devotional liturgy, um, which was recently published. And and, uh, in each sort of personal devotion liturgy, it tells you to spend some time in one of the catechisms at the back. And so I've been doing this for about three months where a part of my personal devotions is uh, praying these prayers, uh, reading the scriptures, also going to the back, and reading a few questions and answers from either the Westminster Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism. And so make, this is really what I want to say, is make use of the catechisms in your home and your devotional life. You will be blessed. This is extracted from the Word of God, and so we need to make use of them. And then as we think about the history of uh, Prince uh, Frederick Elector uh, the Third. when we think about Melanchthon, when we think about the way that they try to bring unity in the realm, um, let's hold our truth with passion and conviction, but let's also be charitable to those who are not quite in the same place that we are, who hold the same hope and trust and faith in the person and finished work of Christ alone for salvation but we may have differences on baptism. We may have differences on the Lord's Supper. We may have uh, differences on ecclesiology and, and the governing of the church. And we may have sharp disagreements. And there may be times when there's a heightened kind of conversation or, or exchanging of views and such. But in it all, we want to hold these things with charity and with love. A beautiful word is irenacy or being irenic, peaceable. Let us not be combative. And irritable, with 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 our reformed convictions. But rather, let us hold them uh, with love, and may this uh, be something we learn from the development of uh, the Heidelberg Catechism and the life of Zacharias Ursinus. Let me pray for us, Father. We thank you for this brief time uh, to consider uh, the life of Zacharias Ursinus, as well as the backdrop and history of the development of this Book of Comfort, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Uh, Lord, we confess it often in this church. We pray that all of us would get more familiar with these 129 questions and answers so that we would be more familiar with and could better articulate this glorious gospel of grace, uh, which uh, you've announced through your Son and which we believe by your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name.